Good. And we're out. I seriously. Yeah, I was feeling particularly so, low energy as well. I, so. I felt so low energy. Man, like, seriously, just channeling Jeb Bush 100%. <laughs> Jeb, with an exclamation point. You got to channel him always. Did you know the absolute saddest story about Jeb Bush during the campaign? But just him being Jeb Bush? Shush. No, it's it's <laughs> this little girl coming up to him and, and he actually had like a whole bunch of these tiny tiny like intricately carved glass turtles like tiny toy turtles and he would give them to kids on his campaign stops and says hey don't worry kids slow and steady wins the race oh that's that's so sad it's so sad that's phenomenal <laughs> wow that is oh jeb buddy buddy man <laughs> Please clap. It's okay. We'll clap for you, Jeb! Do it! I'll do it for you, Jeb! (laughs) Such a noble soul. (laughs) Well, that's definitely going in the intro. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I have with me Stephen. I'm Stephen. And myself, because there's no one else here. It's just us again. Sam is off doing more important and fulfilling things. I confronted him on this, and he said, quote, It's not my fault you don't have a life or anything better to do, end quote. It hurts because it's true. It hurts because it's true. Uh, but Stephen, how are you doing? How are you hanging I, I- out? I'm doing quite well. Uh, I, I just got back from work. Uh, traffic was abysmal, and uh, but but you know I am here on the podcast, and therefore life is good. Post some computer problems, right? Oh yeah. Also, I mean, just you know, smacking my head against uh, you know code and whatnot. Just you know, it's enough to make uh, you know make a person insane. I'm I'm forgetting what the two theological categories of evil are. There's natural evil, and then what's the other one? Is it just hum- I think human just cause? human evil is the other human evil. category. I'm sure there's a better word for it, but in terms of natural evil, I, I, I think it would be fair to say that maybe the two biggest blights in that category would be uh, traffic and and uh, computer problems. And I think you're absolutely right on that. You know, really, Hume, Mackey, all these giant atheist minds, uh, mm-hmm. they, they surprisingly miss these two vital areas of evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think, you know, to their, uh, to their chagrin, because that is... That is quite a devastating assault to the theists. We we still have some uh, theodicists who really need to to wrestle with these weighty issues. Well, actually, so I don't know if you read much Terry Pratchett or Neil Gaiman, um, but their book Good Omens, which is pretty hilarious. It's just sort of like a, uh, a a demon and a demon who I think is described as not falling from heaven, but sort of. Uh, sauntering vaguely downwards and then an angel who just kind of really likes living on earth and you know the various vices that come from living on (laughs) earth they're best buddies and they're uh, tasked by heaven and hell respectively to raise the antichrist Uh, but they find out on like the week before the apocalypse that uh, the babies got switched at birth so they have to rush and try and prevent the apocalypse from happening (laughs) that's awesome Um, but I think I've that, had some friends who have been uh, talking about it, and they're they're huge fans. Yes, yes, and and it just came out as a show on uh, Amazon Prime Video. So uh, uh, my wife and I are are watching that. But in that book, 
the demons are shown to be very sort of old, medievally headed. They're all about like tempting individual people, whereas the modern demons do things like uh, make traffic circles in the shapes of demonic hexes so that they make everyone frustrated and drive badly. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I'm just saying we shouldn't totally discount bar. that. We shouldn't discount that. Um, so anyway, but on that uh, uh, topic transition, Stephen, what are you drinking right now? Right now, I am drinking some refreshing ice water. And by ice water, I mean brand ice. Uh, I think I've had it on the show before. It's quite excellent. I, yeah, deja vu. I'm pretty sure you've done this before. Does it have a flavor? Uh, yeah, cherry lime. That's that's the flavor. And uh, it allegedly has zero sugar. I don't buy it. If if it doesn't have sugar, it probably has something worse in it. Probably. That's that's usually how these things work. Um, yeah. As for myself, uh, I have a, a beautiful tall glass of 2019 Boston tap water. Uh, it tastes a little bit like the Irish mob, uh, maybe a little bit of the Italian district mixed in there. Um, it's good mix. Yeah. Very yeah. Catholic. Yeah. And something about pastries. I'm, I'm not totally sure, but you never really can tell with, uh, with Boston stuff. But speaking of uh, not being able to tell about things uh, in this case, uh, virtue, uh, Stephen, I believe you have, a snappy, succinct, and otherwise superb summary of Chapter 16. Oh, of course. I mean, just given the fact that McIntyre is snappy and succinct in all of his works, I assure you that this will be as as a summary as he is. So, so before you launch in, you know, like string theory and how there's a multiverse. I uh, well, the multiverse. There's different uh, theories around what exactly a multiverse okay. is, and. It, Okay, it doesn't but matter. Anyway, but you, you were about to go into a bit, so I'll, yes, I'll it, 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 it doesn't matter, but in none of them has McIntyre been described as succinct. This is entirely true. There is no possible world in which he was unironically described as succinct. It's a necessary truth. It is a necessary truth. All right, go. Okay, chapter 16, from the virtues to virtue to after virtue. Uh, McIntyre begins the chapter by tying everything together, uh, reminding us how he suggested at the beginning of this book that our contemporary moral dialogue is so depleted precisely because of, quote, the variety of heterogeneous and incommensurable concepts which inform the major premises from which the protagonists in such debates argue, end quote, and considering again the state of what we take to be the virtues. Quote, in this conceptual melange, there, how do you pronounce that word? There are to be found, jostling with such modern concepts as those of utility and rights, a variety of virtue concepts functioning in a variety of different ways. What is lacking, however, is any clear consensus either as to the place of virtue concepts relative to other moral concepts or as to which dispositions are to be included within the catalog of the virtues or the requirements imposed by particular virtues. Uh, end quote. Even when a more traditional view of the virtues is brought up, it is brought up by se disparate sub-factions and quickly eaten by pluralistic misinterpretation. McIntyre says that this is due to the history he has just outlined. The history of the virtues as having been radically changed and the two concepts on which they rested, narrative and practice, having been dismantled during the period of the shifting view of the virtues. This dismantling of the narrative and the practice had the natural result of exempting narrative to the role of art, and art itself exempted from ethics, with the same result ensuing with practice. Quote, the concept of a practice with goods internal to itself, understood as I have tried to understand it, is similarly removed to the margins of our lives, end quote. This alien concept of practice permeates throughout modernity. Politics is no exception. Quote, politics, as Aristotle conceives it, 
as a practice with goods internal to itself. Politics, as James Mill conceives it, is not, end quote. The working class is no exception either. Quote, so long as productive work occurs within the structure of households, it is easy and right to understand that work as part of the sustaining of the community of the household and of the wider forms of community, which the household in turn sustains, end quote. He notes how the modern profession, especially with the non-artist, non-scientist, and non-athlete, all of whose profession is distinctly related to practice, quote, arts, sciences, and games are taken to be work only for a minority of specialists. The rest of us re may receive incidental benefits in our leisure time only as spectators or consumers, end quote. This marks a shift from social engagement to aesthetic consumption. To where do the virtues retreat when narrative unity and practices with goods internal to them are no longer considered an aspect of human life? When Aristotelianism is rejected, and the rejection was clear and final by the end of the 17th century, according to McIntyre, the conceptual background of the virtues is gone, and with the background, any sort of traditional justification of the virtues. They persisted only as psychological expressions or social institutions. Uh, sorry, quote, either the virtues or some of them, could be understood as expressions of the natural passions of the individual or they, or some of them, could be understood as dispositions necessary to curb and to limit the destructive effects of some of those same natural passions, end quote. The 17th and 18th centuries saw morality being understood as a practical solution to egoism, with the content of morality being altruism. This shift is paradoxical, quote, for it was in this, that same period that men came to be thought of as, in some dangerous measure, egoistic by nature. And it is only once we think of mankind as by nature dangerously egoistic that altruism becomes at once socially necessary and yet apparently impossible and, if and when it occurs, inexplicable. End quote. He claims that this phenomenon is simply unknown under an Aristotelian framework. Quote, for what education in the virtues teaches me is that my good as a man is one and the same as the good of those uh, of those others with whom I am bound up in human community, end quote. Goodness is not a zero-sum game under Aristotle. Hume's attempt to distinguish between the natural virtues, which are virtues which are useful qualities to a well-adjusted individual, and artificial virtues, which are constructed to inhibit those acting in their own self-interest in a way that would hurt society, falls short when he attempts to find any reason to actually follow any of these virtues. His attempt is to call on sympathy as a communicated passion, recall that for Hume, passion is the bedrock of morality, but this falls flat. McIntyre continues to describe how Hume fails to adequately account for the virtues, simple contradictions being embedded in his desire to both group the virtues as a set of principles any sane human will enumerate upon some reflection, and his desire to reject the set of virtues enumerated by thinkers such as Diogenes and Pascal. This paradigm shift has three features that result. First, the characterization of particular virtues morphs, quote, in a society where there is no longer a shared conception of the community's good as specified by the good for man. There can no longer be any very substantial concept of what it is to contribute more or less to the achievement of that good, end quote. Here he takes the example of justice no longer being defined in terms of desert, but rather in terms of equality, which Hume rejects, or legal entitlements. Recall McIntyre's argument that rights are moral fictions we tell ourselves. The second feature is the shift in the relationship between virtues and rules. Whereas in Aristotelian scheme, virtues are viewed, quote, as possessing a role and function distinct from and to be contrasted with that of rules or laws, end quote. And in the modern-ish scheme, they are viewed as, quote, just those dispositions necessary to produce obedience to the rules of morality, end quote. 
He comments that it even gets to the point where virtues are defined as sentiments regulated by moral principles, citing roles. The third feature is the shift from virtues being viewed as a plural to a singular virtue, related to his critique of Stoicism a few chapters back. Good is now viewed as a singular entity. No virtue is worth practicing in and of itself, but only insofar as it helps one attain this good. He goes through a brief history which won't be enumerated here, except to say that it ends with the thrust that by the time Kant comes around, morality has become primarily concerned with the question, how do we know which rules to follow, rather than any sort of set of practices or narrative. One attempt at using the virtues as actions to ensure good social order comes in the form of 18th century republicanism, in particular Jacobin clubs, which would enumerate specific virtues such as liberty, fraternity, equality, patriotism, and love of family. Republicanism was an attempt to partially restore the classical tradition, but this ultimately failed. He comments that the lesson found in the eventual fall of the Jacobin clubs is, quote, that you cannot hope to reinvent morality on the scale of a whole nation when the very idiom of the morality which you seek to reinvent is alien in one way to the vast mass of ordinary people and in another to the intellectual elite, end quote. McIntyre identifies two voices that are the last gasps of the tradition of virtue. William Cobbett, and Jane Austen, noting that it's entirely possible that by then, with the overall lack of knowledge around the tradition of virtue, it is entirely possible that they did not even recognize what it was they were advocating. Cobbett primarily fought to change society as a whole. A pre-Marxist, he criticized the individualistic economy and market in which, quote, land, labor, and money itself have all been transformed into commodities, end quote. He saw the virtues as being at home in the small working farmer and in the community. I, for one, wish he elaborated on this individual a little bit more uh, because he never really argued any more for why he was one of the last virtue ethicists, which I think is arguably a flaw. He moves on to D Jane Austen, whom he devotes more time to, noting that all of her characters in all of her novels seek the talos of, quote, a life within both a particular kind of marriage and a particular kind of household of which that marriage will be the focal point, end quote. Her teleological approach is key. She, quote, turns away from the competing catalogs of the virtues of the 18th century and restores a teleological perspective, end quote. Now, this doesn't mean that she doesn't have her own conception of what virtues are relevant to her character's talos. Constancy and amiability both show up in her characters, for example. She's concerned with those who counterfeit the virtues to get what they want, juxtaposing this with a Christian form of self-knowledge, uh, one viewed through the lens of some kind of repentance. Note that the scheme of the society in which she was writing did not view the virtues in this way, and I think it's worth re-quoting the paradigm of the day, quote, either the virtues or some of them could be understood as expressions of the natural passions of the individual or they or some of them could be understood as dispositions necessary to curb and limit the destructive effect of, so of some of those same natural passions, end quote. So she is very against the grain in this sense to say. Uh, Austin represents the last great representative of the classical tradition of the virtues. A grim note to end on, to be sure, uh, McIntyre promises to show us what resulted from the silencing of the tradition in the public sphere by examining what has become of the virtue of justice. But for that, ladies and gentlemen, you'll have to tune in next week. Very good. Uh, thank you for the summary. Very short, very pithy. Yeah, yeah. Um, I enjoyed this chapter quite a bit, uh, sort of notably, I think mostly because he spent a good half of it dunking on Hume, um, yeah. who is is kind of uh, very highly regarded in the 
um, libertarian summer camp world that I've mentioned at times that I had my intellectual start in, I would say. Hume and Adam Smith and sympathy in particular, and him just sort of tearing all of this apart as, you know, just one of the many failed attempts to figure out how to do morality in a post-virtue world. Um, I enjoyed that quite a bit. Um, but to speak particularly of the Jacobin clubs, uh, William Cobbett and Jane Austen, um, with Cobbett, I think, is very interesting, which I, I know nothing more about him than what is in this chapter. Um, but McIntyre is noting in particular sort of the the failure of his project because it tried to be too big. It's trying to fix society as a whole, which he says basically you can't do. So this sort of also ties back to our conversation last week and into, or I guess particularly my clashes with Sam in previous episodes where I'm looking for something larger, some kind of political project. And Sam is like, well, probably not going to work. So that's McIntyre coming down on that point. Um, With Jane Austen, we have a, sort of different approach in which she's not exactly reviving anything big or doing anything on a large scale, but she is keeping alive a teleological tr- tradition in a particular sphere. Um, in, in this case, uh, marriage and in uh, family life and family life centered around marriage. And I, I think sort of the individual holding to virtues in a proper Aristotelian sense, or at least the kind that McIntyre likes, is quite similar and still similar to the situation that we find ourselves in today, where there's not really any way to to go back. Um, and if to go back is, is probably the wrong word, because you know we have a, a golden view of a past history that probably doesn't exist, that our only option might be to be virtuous, uh, quote-unquote, properly so, in small communities, which we also talked about uh, last episode. Um, but that also sort of leads into where McIntyre is going to end, which is with the Benedict option, uh, or not necessarily called that yet, but looking for a new St. Benedict. I, I think that's a good call out. Uh, his, I, I didn't recognize this when I was first reading through it, but, but they're kind of his, his critique on Cobbett saying he tried to bite off more than he could chew. And what he was introducing was just so fundamentally alien, both upwards and downwards, both to the intellectual elite and then also to kind of the masses. They, they didn't have a conception of what he was talking. And so it was almost as if he was speaking a different language because in some ways he, he, he was when he would talk of virtue, they would understand it in a completely different way. Um, and so yeah. I, I think he is kind of building up to the rather grim conclusion that look, this just, we need to, we need to preserve virtue in some intentional form such that, hopefully society will eventually get to the point where it can be reintroduced. This all sort of ties into larger thoughts that I've had. Um, but first, just to note very briefly, towards the beginning of the chapter, he, he talks about how uh, one of the key moments in the creation of modernity occurs when production moves outside the household. So long as productive work occurs within the structure of households, it is easy and right to understand that work as part of as part of sustaining the community of the household and of those wider forms of community which the household in turn sustains. Basically making a Marxist-ish, um, at least borrowing from it, because I think he, he still was at this point. Maybe still is. Who knows? Who cares? He's um, still sympathetic with Marx. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, but but anyway, just sort of the, the st- structural argument for um, material forces being at least somewhat determinative in terms of uh, cultural 
um, zeitgeisty decisions, which I, I think does have a large measure of truth. Um, some pundits that I've that I listen to and read and, and find very interesting things things like the washing machine and the automobile did more for you know female independence than any political movement ever did um or and and you could make that along a variety of of lines but the point is just that technological innovation and material change has done a lot more than sort of this history ideas debate that we've been having for several hundred years, which makes things particularly interesting when you try and talk about something like this, which is, at least as McIntyre presents it, a it's an idea. But if I but critiques like he brings up about the household and uh, things about, you know, washing machines and cars, whatever, these bring the question of how powerful are ideas really compared to more structural technological material factors. That is a, an intriguing line of thought because it does seem almost inevitable once people start realizing how just infinitely more efficient the assembly line is, for example. How how great must an idea be, be in order to combat the sheer efficiency of a particular form, no matter how alienating the assembly line is? For example, to just run with Kafka or Marx or, or what have you. I mean, you're talking about a device that, yes, alienating, existentially awful, but at the same time able to distribute a large amount of goods to people that otherwise arguably would not have been able to acquire said goods. And so I think you do have a rather chilling idea, honestly, of how ideas are powerful, but are they as powerful as technologies? Uh, and I, I think I think we are currently yeah. entering a time, especially with dissemination of ideas being spread right, wider and wider, that they're actually kind of getting to a point where ideas might be able to tackle it. Ironically enough, through technology, though. Oh, I well, no, I, I guess I'm just more pessimistic. Um, the dissemination of ideas is not necessarily the same as how to say this. Um, so let's say in in, in some kind of an ideal uh, world of ideas, you have something like either some sort of strong pluralism, maybe assuming that you know you reach uh, irreconcilable conflicts, or you have something like a dialectic where you are debating and moving towards some good final end. But with the dissemination and the the spreading of ideas, I think I don't think the spread of ideas means that the ideas have gotten any deeper. I don't think there's a dialectic happening, and I don't think there's a strong pluralism happening either. It's some sort of gray mismatch where debate is never between people. So there's no winners. There's no, I don't know. I, I, I am much more pessimistic about the spread of ideas. I think it's just more like something like the spread of information and the reduction of ideas to information or to objects to be used for whatever causes are efficient at the time. I suppose the one thing that gives me hope, for example, is the, increased amount of skepticism towards social media. Uh, so I I think the counterpoint I would raise to that, and I, I think you do have a solid point there, but the counterpoint I would raise to that is there are ways that ideas do combat technology. And I would cite, for example, the growing skepticism and cynicism towards social media, for example. Uh, a 
wildly popular technology that has took off like wildfire. And yet people are starting to become more and more skeptical, you know, movements to uninstall apps and, or at least minimize time spent on various social media platforms. And so I guess I do see examples of ideas fighting back, but you do have a solid point. And I must confess that social media is definitely still around. It's just more popular forms of it take, take over. And the, the assembly line is still around, uh, meaning that, you know, as powerful as Marx's ideas were, they never really took off either. Yeah. A, uh, a grim note, certainly. This this overall chapter is pretty grim. Yeah. Yeah, there's not a... I don't know. The, the idea of our only salvation being um, establishing monasteries is never a happy place to leave a, a book. Um, certainly not. Certainly not. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, well, there's a lot more to say for sure, but we're going to try and keep this snappy. Um, so speaking of being snappy, uh, Stephen, I believe you have an article about how snappily one can destroy one's own career. Indeed, indeed. So my article was, uh, from the online news source, Colette.com, uh, the impassable road to redemption by Clinton Margrave. Uh, and so I, I brought a similar article to the podcast a few weeks ago, which was a New York Times piece called The Cruelty of Co-op Culture, uh, in which it laid out how co-op culture can ruin people's lives and how those who participate in such um, oftentimes feel little or no remorse for their actions. Uh, that piece mainly concentrated on the perpetrators. And the reason I, brought, I bring a similar article is that this one concentrates on the victims. So the article follows Frank Sherlock who is a poet laureate uh, who admitted to playing in a racist skinhead band back in the 1980s after he was outed by another poet. Uh, he posted how he had indeed been a part of this uh, band and deeply regrets this. But soon after he had done so, he was crucified in the public sphere of the internet by called back books, his former collaborator, C.A. Conrad, who indeed requested that their, their collaborated book be taken off the shelves, uh, poet Sarah Bess and others. Now, before we get too deep into the weeds, I would like to note that the author doesn't actually cite any other call-outs other than these. I think it's safe to say that there were likely more, but I also don't want to fall into the other end of the spectrum and go into some sort of persecution conflict. So I would like to note that. Uh, but after he put this post up, he eventually ended up taking it down and kind of retreated into silence, um, which is I, I find the whole thing rather strange. The apology was ostensibly sincere, Sherlock has spent years working in urban and immigrant communities, and it's hard to think that he still harbors racist opinions given how much he serves in these communities. But the rhetoric used against him seems to imply that even if he truly has, like, it, let's accept the premise that he has, it still doesn't matter. Uh, quoting Sarah Best, for example, who is a fellow poet, quote, I don't know the story, and I don't need to, but I will say that the question should never be, can a, fa can a fascist change, but should a fascist be allowed to change? And the answer is no, end quote. This sort of rhetoric Margrave links to Sam's first article, America's New Religions, and noting how heresy of this sort is punishable by banishment or public demonstrations of shame. He notes that Sherlock is not the only one citing, for example, Liam Neeson's recent debacle in which he confessed to harboring racist and violent thoughts towards an unknown black man who raped his friend. In the interview, Neeson professed a desire to show people that it was possible to recover from hate and cited the instance as... It, Oh, sorry. Inside the instance as involving him, hoping he'd run into this guy so he could hurt him, and even noting that the interviewer 
could make him look really bad for saying this. Uh, but the whole purpose was that it had a redeeming arc that he learned to let go and move on. Um, unfortunately, indeed, this really did hurt him. Uh, he too was publicly defamed. The red carpet event for his latest movie, Cold Pursuit, was even canceled over this. Margaret moves to discussing uh, Megan Phelps Roper, who is a former member of the Westboro Baptist Church, a den of vile racists, if ever there was one, to be sure. Uh, and he notes that she left not because she was called out, but because a Jewish man named David Abitbull uh, engaged with her on tw Twitter. It's not hatred, it's love that will bring people about, which I think is certainly a good note to end that article on. It's, it is filled with a lot of arguably persecution complexity things, but it also, it demonstrates how vicious this sort of uh, call-out can be and how there really are no, you know, no holds barred and uh, that people's lives end up arguably getting ruined over it. Um, and that it doesn't really bring about any good for anyone. And so I, I think it's important to, to recall that you know, engaging with people where they're, they're at and doing so lovingly will actually affect change. Yeah, I I think you sort of brought up the, the key quote, um, which was just that person arguing on Twitter, uh, you know, the question to should a fascist be allowed to change? The answer is no, is, I don't know, such a cold-hearted close-minded something whatever adjective you know it, 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 engaging in criticisms like i just did is probably counterproductive all things considered it's it's totally lacking in empathy totally lacking in um sort of i don't know the, the belief that people can improve in any way i mean in in the case of this particular poet he did this when he was 18 and from the accounts at least in the article from what i read is he's sort of made it part of his mission to combat the things that he was once in he's certainly not you know uh saying it, it was a good thing it, it was he was being ap apologetic about it um and and this kind of thing comes back to to bite people there's all sorts of interesting examples of this of you know chances are if you were on social media 10 years ago uh, thankfully i wasn't you did not have the correct opinions if you had those same opinions in 2019 and if that continues to happen um, at the rate that it, you know, the uh, proper consensus has been happening, these people are just setting themselves up for for fun times in in the future. Um, but that's not even like that's a pragmatic question. I mean, the the other core question is, you know, like can can people get better? And I would hope so. But when I read this, and particularly the reactions that people had against this guy, I just one quote from G.K. Chesterton came to mind you know, having to do with these people's politics of, uh, you know, you could say ad admirable in, in the sense that one of the core desires, I think it would be accurate to say, is defending the weak. You know, if you're a skinhead, by definition, you are opposed to various minority vulnerable groups. So that's not a good thing. Um, you're in a group that seeks to... Uh, you know, actively oppress people. So the reaction to defend those oppressed people is, is is great. But this but this quote did come to mind just seeing sort of the fanaticism of the people coming after this guy. And the quote is this uh, quote In anything that does cover the whole of your life, in your philosophy, in your religion, you must have mirth. If you do not have mirth, you will certainly have madness. End quote. Ooh, I like that quote. And the total uh 
lack of empathy, lack of mirth. I, I, I think the inability to to laugh um, that seems somewhat cheesy, but it uh, that it the madness bit. I, I see the madness everywhere. <laughs> Absolutely. I think Sam's article, uh, the, the New Religions one, touched on that, on both the kind of far left and far right religions in that there is a certain almost puritanical mm-hmm. uh, view towards their, their well, religion, towards their set of religious dogmas. And there is no room for mirth. And I think that is that is actually quite a pithy way of putting it. Yeah. <clears throat> well, uh, speaking of pithy ways of putting things uh transition transition the title of my article this week is the case against grit uh appearing in the atlantic um so just a little bit of, of background so that this article makes sense a uh, grit is a thing that it's just a fancy new word of uh for saying you know trying hard and being individualistic and single-minded in the pursuit of whatever goal you find worthwhile um there's you know various sort of famous ted talks and books that go after this the the basic argument is something like the one that malcolm gladwell make and uh, makes in his book outliers that talks about like you know you need to put ten thousand hours pursuing a subject or a task or a game or whatever it is in order to be considered an expert in it if you haven't put that much time into it no one should consider you an expert and that's what it actually takes and the people that are the experts in whatever field they're in are the people that put in the time so you know it, it's sort of been a subculture of wisdom that you that to get good things you need to be totally single-minded you need to be dogged in pursuit of them and you know they bring up examples like tiger woods who was you know golfing when the putter was taller than he was i, I don't know whatever but uh the one interesting realm that this has translated over to is to child rearing because if you want to be a uh, top tier whatever, you usually have to start doing that thing when you are a kid. So there's all sorts of parents who have been essentially enforcing grit on their children. Um, one book that talks about this is uh, The Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, a uh, 2011 book um, that basically encouraged parents to put their children into really rigorous activities, have them focus super hard, you know, don't let them quit, like make them. Make that make your kid learn the violin. Make them learn ninjutsu. Make them into whatever you know the champion swimmer. Um, and it just sort of has contributed to uh, what's the term now? We've gone from helicopter parent. I think we're something else now. But anyway, just you, parents in for sort of I don't want to say living vicariously, but kind of living vicariously. It's like oh man, I always wanted to be a champion something. So you make your kid do it. Um, and but it's sort of masked in in this language of giving kids a head start uh, if they're ever to achieve excellence, which you know maybe has some merit. Um, but this article just basically makes the argument against that, saying that even in a lot of examples, uh, Roger Federer being a big one, drawing from a book called Range, I think. So in contrast to Grit, which is which is single-minded, focused range, is just like let your kid quit sometimes and try lots of things, which seems pretty reasonable. Um, is talking about like Roger Federer, who tried a whole bunch of different sports and, you know, sort of gradually settled on tennis, but not until later in life. And all those different sports and games and stuff that he tried also have contributed to his tennis success, too. Um, and, and, and also they talk about stuff where um, learning when to quit and when to persevere um, are, are both valuable things. It, it's, it's not enough to know to just keep going, because that could mean that you keep trying and just a job that's terrible. Um, you're like, no, I'm just going to power through, and you're miserable, and you never, nothing changes. So you do need to know 
when to to quit as as well. Um, and as someone who is a young professional who, you know, kind of wishes that my parents, you know, forced me into a cram school to learn eight languages and teach me Kung Fu and, you know, teach me computer programming from the time I was five so I could be super cool now. Um, I, I definitely would have liked that at a time and it probably would have screwed me up as a kid. Um, so this is a reminder both to myself that I should be able to range a little bit and also to when and uh, yeah, when I, I, I have children. Um, that I should uh, uh, not uh, uh, ruin their childhood either. I like the the angle that this article is taking. It's it, I, I'm not being a parent. I could not say, but I would wager that it must be such a difficult line to walk. On the one hand, letting your kid just kind of give up on everything in the moment becomes difficult. It's like, well, the best things in life are worth you know really putting a lot of effort in and very few things are going to come super easy and you don't want to inculcate a habit of giving up easy but at the same time you also should you know make it so that it's okay for your kid to quit i shudder to think how much money my parents spent on piano lessons when long after it had become painfully clear that i would never get beyond mediocre um not only did i just i i natural talent is such a funny thing because you know, some people say there's no such thing. Some people say it's all work. Some people do say, I don't know. But it, I, at the very least, I, I do not have any innate gift for music. And uh, nor did I have a drive to become particularly good. Uh, piano practicing was always a chore, never a delight. And I mean, I, I did it for 10 years and, again, never got beyond mediocre. Uh, and so kind of looking back, it probably would have been wise for me to to kind of quit after I realized, oh, this is just not something I'm into. Maybe I can go try something else. So it must be such a difficult line to walk around. I'm glad that this author is at least advocating the other side instead of just kind of this, uh, you know, singular focus only, you know, like you can't ever give up. Or yeah, it's, it, it's also interesting sort of hearkening back to our um, conversation regarding material circumstances, how much... Uh, this might be considered um, something akin to uh, hyper-specialization, um, but just starting in childhood now. But that's probably not, uh, that. that's probably facetious given that, you know, people have been training their kids to be virtuosos in everything for all time. Um, uh, that, that is true. I mean, you have people back in the day, you know, starting training their kids when they're, you know, four to be a great horseback rider or what so yeah and uh, that is true but it doesn't make it necessarily wrong that this is kind of hopefully my kid can become one of the elite that gets to do you know the super i guess uh specialized skill or what have you the practice uh and not you know there is something about the i don't want my kids to end up doing kind of what everyone else does i want them to be special or what have you yeah yeah, but uh, as this article says, uh, sometimes um, grit can get in the way of happiness. Um, and for my rant, uh, something that got in the way of my happiness uh, is a uh, professor named Paul Dolan of uh, the London School of Economics. And he's, uh, he's one of those happiness guru types, um, and he recently mm. published some books, uh, Happiness by Design and Happily Ever After, which has you know been have has been reviewed tons of articles he has a ted talk among other things just all over the place and one of his big points in his spiel is that women are unhappy in marriage and men are not so his sort of pithy thing is like hey men get married women don't bother um that's a quote oh. and, uh and and so 
the funny thing was, though, in his most recent book, which I think is out on reviewer copy, I don't think it's it, it, it's fully out yet, but this was based on a reading of a survey of Americans um, that said that married people are more happy on average, but that when the spouse is absent, uh, women say that they're extremely unhappy. So he interpreted this to say that when spouses are together in the same room being interviewed, they say that they're happy. But then once the husband leaves the room, women say, actually, I'm miserable. What he didn't know uh, is that this was a phone survey. And because he's English and not American, he didn't understand that spouse absent actually meant single women whose spouse had left them or they had left their spouse. So it actually said the opposite of what he thought that it said. Um, <laughs> That's and, perfect. And, and, he, and he was called out on this. Um, and I, it's, it's my understanding that the book is being revised uh, currently to, to accommodate this. Um, his, his poor research assistant, who was apparently the one who did this, and he just never double-checked close enough to figure it out. Um, and, uh, but here's the thing. Numerous, and when I say numerous, I mean many. Like, we're talking The Guardian, we're talking just place, th- all over uh, England and the U.S. too. Articles were written about this, saying, oh, women, don't bother getting married. Marriage is miserable. It only benefits men. The damage is done. No retraction is going to fix the perception that this, you know, is professor at a great school, London School of Economics, has posted, nor his TED Talk, which uses this data to support this point. The damage is, is done. Like, God damn it, guys. Like, social science just needs to be abolished at, at, at this point. Russ Roberts of, of Econ Talk and this just random adjunct in Australia uh, figured this out. And uh, thankfully, it, it looks like the guy is being fairly gracious about his mistake. He's admitted it. But still, God damn. Well said. Wow, that I, I have not heard of this, but that is incredible. I mean, given again, we, we, we briefly touched on information dissemination uh, and given how fast even patently false things spread, the fact that it's linked to an actual professor at a you know, prestigious university. Yeah, you, you are right. Damage done. Jeez, yep. what, a, what a screw up. Uh, my rant, I feel like I already uh, did my, my rant in part, so I'm just going to kind of continue with that traffic. Traffic is a, a, just an abysmal thing. Uh, it is, it, there's something just terribly frustrating about sitting in your car with a bunch of other people who are all just as miserable as you sitting in their car. But I would take that moment to to just cite my my homeboy David Foster Wallace and saying this is water and just attempting to to kind of to to, to reclaim the the frustration and the annoyance of the everyday commute and whatnot. Uh, so uh, as as much as I want to go on a massive tangent, I know uh, David Foster Wallace would look down on me from his uh, you know heavenly home above and say. Oh, what are you doing? And then he would go on a long rampage uh, with about 50 million footnotes and parentheticals. And uh, I wouldn't understand half of what he said. So I won't go on too long of a rant, but traffic sucks. God damn it, Stephen. We were on like a four episode streak without David Foster Wallace and you just ruined it. He's just so good, everyone. You need to read him. Okay. And, and also, I do want to make a point. You said David Foster Wallace looking down from above. I don't, as far as I can tell, Maybe I don't want to be too critical here, but probably not heaven. I'm I'm more inclined to see him as kind of like a Virgil 
uh, noble pagan. <laughs> so like he can guide people through purgatory and and oh, stuff. You're too but kind. yeah, I, yeah. No he, offense. No, no, no. He, he, the religious. Well, I think as a Catholic, you would say he committed suicide. Therefore, that's just a no go right there. The grace of God is unknowable and infinite, so we cannot make a definitive judgment ever since, I don't know, like, maybe 18-something. I don't know when we probably stopped saying that people go straight to hell. I don't know. But whatever that was, um, we can no longer make that determination. Certainly his uh, his religion was very strange. There were a couple times he tried to convert to uh, Roman Catholicism, and towards, I think, the early 2000s, he was semi-regularly attending a church. He, he cited his church several times in uh, um, his post-9-11 essay. Uh, so, for whatever that's worth. But yes, you're probably right. He is probably not looking uh, from above. He's probably going to be guiding four unfortunate souls through purgatory. Mm-hmm. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here, because... That was hell, not purgatory, but yes. Well, yes. Anyway. Oh, sorry. Oh, did you just uh, do a good this is water joke with that? Oh, I'm sorry. I interrupted. I, I did. It, it honestly wasn't that good. It was pretty subpar. I'm, I'm, I'm probably happy. better for the fact that you interrupted me mid, mid-joke. mid it. Was oh, I, I'd be happy if you cut that out and if you want to do the joke again, because that wasn't all that. That was just me being pretentious and quoting or and correcting you on something you already knew. <laughs> no, it's 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 fine. Um, well, I, I think that's Probably pretty pithy. Um, once we that's, that's pretty fast for us. Fifty minutes or sub fifty minutes. That's very fast for us. Yeah, and and we'll get five minutes out with with editing. So uh, I think that's that's pretty good. Um, I'm cool. So hey, I felt a little low energy tonight. So for that, I apologize. But next time, I promise I will have a can of Red Bull and I will just mix it with uh, what's the Mountain Dew one? Head Start, Red Start. I have no idea. Anyway, I'll I'll mix those together and inject it straight into my uh, um, uh, femoroid artery, um, and I will. I will be... have an IV drip of coffee, just double attached to me. I'm not sure if that's even possible, but it will be. It will be. All right. Um, so for everyone here at the uh, Problem with Reading podcast, uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And we will see you next time. Have a good week. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Light mode. Oh, jeez. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll end us there. That's fine. Uh,